Hello, Broadway Radio listeners. This is James Marino. Today is Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. July 4th is the unofficial start of the summer in the United States, and for the 15th year, Jan Simpson has published her summer reading list at broadwayandme.com. Peter and Michael let Jan and me take over this week on Broadway for today so we can speak with Jordan Schildkraut, the author of In the Long Run, A Cultural History of Broadway's Hit Plays, which made Jan's list this year. After our conversation with Jordan, Jan and I talk about a few of the other books on this year's list. Peter, Michael, and I will be back in your ears next Sunday for a new episode of This Week on Broadway. Welcome to a special episode on Broadway Radio. My name is James Marino. With me today, I have Jan Simpson, who uh, is a theater journalist who writes the blog Broadway and Me and hosts the Broadway Radio podcasts, Stagecraft and All the Drama. Hi, Jan. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, James? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for joining us once again, because it's it's become... I'm not sure, is this our second or our third year we're talking about the summer reading series that you do on Broadway and Me? Yeah, it's now a tradition. <laughs> now it is. Now, you know, it's a pattern. Uh, as as uh, the, our, my children used to say, you know, we'd, we'd go to ice cream once in the afternoon and they're like, that's a pattern. You know, Daddy, that's a pattern. That's a pattern. We go to ice cream all the time in the afternoon. So, uh this year's uh, list, tell us a little bit about uh, what books you have picked, how many books, and what type of books have you picked for your uh, summer reading series for 2022? There are, this year, the numbers fluctuate. This year, there are 10 uh, books on the list, and six of them are novels, uh, two are memoirs, and Two are are sort of uh, theater histories uh, for people who are just interested in knowing uh, about the theater. All right. So uh, let's start with uh, probably some of the more well-known names Mm. that we'll talk about. So a very funny title, uh, I Was Better Last Night by Harvey Firestein. Uh, it's a double entendre <laughs> um, because what it really uh, uh, means in this context is when uh, people come to visit you at your show mm. and they come backstage, <laughs> Harvey would always say, I was better last night. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is uh, Harvey's look back at his uh now five uh, decade career. And it's a terrific book. Uh, Obviously, Harvey Firestein is a great writer and uh, and also a great raconteur. And so he starts with his childhood in Brooklyn, listening to cast albums at home, uh, being in different school productions, uh, and then just moving forward. He was very much a part of the downtown theater scene starting in his teens. Uh, he was a part of the Andy Warhol set, which I didn't know. Uh, did so many uh, 
uh, off, off what we now think of as off off Broadway uh, productions was one of um, the great Ellen Stewart who started La Mama, one of her children, uh, and 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 just uh, his evolution as he moves from downtown largely through Torch Song, uh, which we all, uh, which so many of us now know, um, uh, was his move from the downtown world to the Broadway world. And of course, now he is a mainstay, an icon on Broadway. Um, You know, you might even call him the mayor of Broadway. He's mm-hmm. worked on so many uh, Broadway shows. He has so many stories. He is, and and his stories aren't just um, isolated to the Broadway community. He knows so many people in so many different <laughs> worlds and has so many funny stories about them. One of his earliest stories is about doing a palm reading for the the writer and memorist Aeneas Nin when he was like 15 or 16 years old. People just liked him, gravitated towards him, embraced him. And it is just a fantastic read. And I have to say, um, I listened to it on audiobook. And that is really great because, of course, he reads it. And mm. so it's it's almost like you and Harvey are just sitting there and talking. It's also, I don't want to spend too much more time on this one book, but it's also a very poignant book because uh, it is about the coming of age of a gay man of his now age. And it wasn't always an easy journey. Uh, and a lot of what we see in Torch Song, particularly with the relationship with the mother, was Harvey's relationship with his own mother. And there's there's um, a, a lot of real poignancy uh, in the book as well. He also deals very openly with his uh, alcoholism and how he dealt with that. It's It's just a terrific book. Wow, that's great! I, I was going to ask if there was uh, a uh, an audio book. Can you beat me to the punch there? Because I was going to see if you read it on the page. Did, did you hear his voice in your head? But you literally heard your, his voice. I heard in your his head. voice in my head. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. And also, the next uh, book about a well-known figure is "All About Me" by Mel Brooks. This is uh, another memoir, obviously, uh, slightly different. Mel Brooks is, I don't know if just by nature or just for this book, he's not a particularly introspective uh, a person or a particularly introspective writer, but he's a delightful writer. Um, the first part of the book um, uh, for theater lovers, of course, what we really want to know about is the the creation of the producers. He doesn't get to the producers until chapter 25. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Really and, all about me. 
<laughs> and so when it's starting, literally, I mean, we've, we've got uh, uh, little Mel in the crib. And as <laughs> we go through his life, at first I was thinking, okay, Mel, um, I'm now like at chapter four and you're like eight years old. What's going on here? But he is so entertaining and so funny that it's an enjoyable book. It's just an enjoyable book. He's, he's had an incredible life uh, working uh, in the golden age of television on Sid Caesar's uh, uh, Your Show of Shows, making those incredibly uh, uh, well-known classic comedy movies, um, The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, uh, and so on. And producing a lot of movies that I didn't know he had his his hand in. Uh, and having this incredibly successful marriage with the actress Anne Bancroft and this longtime uh, friendship with Carl Reiner. Uh, it's... Uh, it's sort of a joyous book, um, just full of funny stories, full of uh, sort of how the sausage gets made, whether the <laughs> sausage is you know, a, a TV show, a movie, or finally a Broadway show. And uh, it's, it's great fun. So let's change gears here. We'll talk, we'll talk about the six novels that made your list and, uh, and why – uh, what's your attraction to novels? Uh, I think like many readers, I, you know, grew up reading stories and loving stories, but I really work to, uh, seek out novels about the theater. I love them. And what I really, uh, love about them is the insight that they provide into various aspects of the theater world and particularly the historical novels about the theater were transported back to maybe Shakespeare's time or Moliere's time or maybe the 1970s um, uh, when there was a lot of ferment um, in the regions and uh, in the off-Broadway theater world. Um, it's just a great way to learn about uh, theater and what was going on in those periods at the same time that you're getting a great yarn. And I think um, there, there, as you say, there were six uh, books. I think the two that I'll, I'll just single out very briefly are one is Booth by uh, uh, author Karen Joy Fowler, and it is about the Booth family uh, who were dominant in 19th century uh, theater. Uh, the uh, patriarch of the family came over from England and uh, the most famous of the Booths became Edwin Booth. And of course, the most notorious of the booth hmm. was John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated uh, Lincoln. And the book 
the novel travels from the early days of the Booth family through the uh, assassination. And it's a, a fascinating look at the time, um, uh, particularly uh, the antebellum period, the pre-Civil War period, and the move up to the Civil War period, just in general. It's, it's interesting to see the tensions mount. But it's also a fascinating look at what theater was like during those times. And it's it was really really exciting. It was mass entertainment. People were passionate about the theater. They were passionate about the actors and just regular people, um, you know, like miners in California, passionate about the theater because this was their form of entertainment. And then the other is a book called Vamps Until Ready by James McCruder. And this (laughs) is a, a collection of linked short stories about people involved with or connected to a summer stock theater in Ithaca, New York. Some of them are professionals, some of them are amateurs, and it's about how theater can change lives. Uh, It's set during the 1980s, um, and it's, it's just a lovely book. It's just, it's a, it's, it really is a lovely, great summer read because it's short stories. So you can read, you know, stop. Uh, the, the characters in the stories are all linked. And so sometimes a character is just sort of a supporting player in one story. And then in the next story, the story is about them. They're the, the, the focus, the lead uh, character in the story. But I find that reading novels about the, the theater is just a wonderful way to learn a lot about uh, theater history. And uh, and it's 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 just great fun. All right. Uh, next up, the next thing that I wanted to talk about is the book "From Gods to Bad Boys" by Gilles Ramsey. So, <laughs> tell us about this. This is this is kind of I don't even know how I stumbled on this book. I have to say, it's a it's a strange book in a sense that um, Gilles Ramsey is a. a, a theater journalist and critic and he um is telling the history what he purports to be the history of theater through 12 <laughs> mini biographies and the god that he starts out with is the god dionysus the god of theater and mm. um and he talks about the competitions in ancient Greece um, and uh, how this is the beginning of what we know uh, as theater. And he goes through uh, the first uh, few choices, you know, sort of makes sense. He has like Aeschylus, the father of Greek tragedy, and then he has every man. And, you know, these are, uh, the morality tales that came uh, during uh, the Middle Ages. And then he goes to Christopher Marlowe, William Shakespeare. But there are also names that um, were new to me at any rate. Um, Afra Bain or Bain, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. who was the first uh, woman 
uh, to be a professional writer in the 17th century. And she wrote like over two dozen plays, it seems. Um, uh, Another woman uh, who I think some listeners will know, I... I'm ashamed to say, did not know. Uh, Lillian Bayless is her name, and she was for many years in the early part of the 20th century, the manager of the Old Vic in London. The problem here, not problem, but the thing to note here is all of the people he cites in his books are British, hmm. except for one. There's a, there's a German guy. There's a German duke. <laughs> but there are no Americans uh, uh, mm. at all. He has he has uh, David Garrick, the actor, Oscar Wilde, uh, Terence Radigan, Joe Orton, um, uh, uh, playwrights. But they're all Europeans. And so I started thinking, well, what would happen if uh, we had our own version uh, of that here? And I think, you know, immediately uh, the names that sort of just jumped to mind are like Mike Nichols and uh, Mm. Hal Prince, Um, you know. But then as I started thinking and digging a little bit more, some unexpected names came up. um, And one of the first was uh, George Pierce Baker. And uh, as you know, I've been doing this series on a Pulitzer Prize winning plays. And George Pierce Baker uh, was the founder, he was a theater professor, and he was the founder of the Yale School of Drama. But even more important, I think, is he was the theater professor for and mentor for George Abbott, Philip Barry, Sidney Howard, Eugene O'Neill. Hmm. All of them took his class. And so, uh, obviously, a really important person um, in, uh, in, in theater here in America. And I just wondered if, um, I don't know if, if, if readers will be early, uh, readers, if listeners will be into this, but if um, folks are, if they would, you know, email us and suggest who else might be on this list of uh people through whom we could tell American theater. Um, There were some other writer uh, names that I came across. There was a guy named Lewis Hallam, um, who had the first professional uh, theater in the United States in the 1750s, before Mm. the revolution. And then there were these two guys, um, Abram Hill and Frederick O'Neill, who were founders of the American Negro Theater uh, in the, uh, I believe, the 1940s. And out of their their theater came Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Alice Childress. So there are names that we really do know, you know, like Carol Clerman and the group theater or um, Lee Strasberg, those kinds mm-hmm. of names. Yeah. But then there are these other names that are new, at least to me, but that really contributed to theater in this country. I also want to throw in uh, Hallie Flanagan, who studied with George Pierce Baker, 
but who uh, ran the Federal Theater Project uh, during the Great Depression as part of the New Deal and who kept uh, theater artists working during uh, the Great Depression. Uh, and a lot of people that, uh, you know, whose work we know from that period uh, were supported uh, uh, by her, most notably um, the Cradle of Rock came out of that uh, period and also led to the demise of the program. But uh, there are th- there, these uh, uh, Zelda Fitch Handler, uh, you know, one of the first pioneers of the regional theater movement. There are all of these great people um, who it would be really interesting to see um, who else people would come up with. All right. So uh, if you do have some of those ideas, you'll find uh, Jan's email address and my email yeah. address in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well. So you can let us know about that. So finally, we've ramped up into uh, a special guest that's going to join us. Yes. With us today, we have a very special guest. Jordan Schultkraut is with us. Jordan is a professor of theater and performance at Purchase College, and he's with us because Jan has picked out one of his books, In the Long Run, A Cultural History of Broadway's Hit Plays, as part of her summer reading list. So, Jordan, thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Great. It's great to be here. This is your second uh, your second time on Broadway Radio. About two years ago, uh, you had an interview with with uh, Matt Tamanini, and I'll link to that in the show notes so people can go back and and uh, fact check you. You know, <laughs> in in these days of congressional hearings, we're all about the fact checking, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> rightly so. Yes, <laughs> rightly so. So, in the long run, a cultural history history of Broadway plays. You talk about a number of uh, long-running shows and, uh, and do some sort of analysis and comparison of them. So tell me, um, was this something that you, uh, you came about and thought about as your Ph.D.? Uh, I should say you're a doctor now. As mm-hmm. part of your Ph.D. research, or did this come after? Uh, it was mostly after, although it definitely linked to some of the work I was doing uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, actually mostly around the play Death Trap, because mm. I was writing uh, about queer villainy and the figure of the murderer in the theater. And so this mm. led me to thrillers, including Death Trap. And part of what surprised me is that this play, you know, of course, was enormously successful, ran for, you know, thousand performances on Broadway, uh, staged all over the country, famous film version. And yet there was almost no critical attention to it. I think that many scholars or people in the, you know, kind of theater history field considered it just, uh, you know, a kind of popular play that didn't necessarily merit further analysis. And so I realized that, in my opinion, Death Trap did merit that kind of analysis and understanding, but that there were a whole slew of plays, many of them largely forgotten to contemporary theater fans, let alone, you know, students and professors and, you know, people in my field. Uh, And I thought it was a history worth exploring. And the more I explored it, I realized it was a history worth telling. And so I just became really uh, intrigued by reading these plays, finding out about their history, really understanding their context, and and honestly just trying to follow the question, why were these plays so popular? In many cases, honestly, they're not always very good plays. 
but they were extremely popular plays. And it's that sort of tension between popularity and prestige, uh, between box office success and esteem, that uh, to me is telling part of a larger story about really what the American theater is and how it functions in our culture. Was there anything that, that connected them in terms of why they were so popular? I mean, the most I could say is that each in their own way definitely did speak to their moment in time. Uh, and the question, of course, with some of them is, well, you know, did they last beyond their time? And a handful do, but frankly, most don't. Uh, but beyond that, no, I wouldn't say that there's like one thing that ties all of them, although definitely there are certain, you know, I don't know, recurring themes and motifs that I try to point out in the book. Uh, so, for example, one of them is what, you know, just in terms of genre, we'd call a comedy of remarriage. It's a couple that's been together for a while, has faced some tough times, perhaps they've separated or in danger of separating. And over the course of the play, they're brought back together as a couple, happy ending. Uh, it's just a kind of standard comic trope and one that many of the plays participate in. There are also uh, family dramas and in a few cases, what I might call the sort of uh, the journey of the individual. Someone sort of like realizing that they can stand on their own against society. So, you know, plays like Harvey or Torch Song Trilogy do that. Uh, so there's a few different modes that they operate in, not one singular mode. Um, but definitely a lot of what I found is that each of them in their way touched a popular nerve in their particular time. So you mentioned Harvey and Harvey played from uh, 1944 to 1949 in its original run. There was mm -hmm. a quick quick revival in the 70s, and then there was the uh, Roundabout production in 2012 that uh, ran about uh, only a, f a few months or yeah, so. Yeah, it's a limited run. Yeah, It was a limited run. So uh, do you think that it um, some of these long-running shows, uh, did you find that they were... Uh, reflective of the society at the time, and that's why they, they could be uh, commercially viable? Absolutely. I think that there was in some way that they spoke to an interest or simply had a worldview that appealed to the audience. So perhaps like the most famous example of this is the longest running straight play in Broadway history, which is Life with Father. Uh, so here's a play set in like the 1880s, kind of, you know, what I might generally call a trivial family comedy, a family dealing just like with the little, you know, bits and pieces that um, can upset a family, but nothing too serious, nothing too dangerous. Um, and so even though this play being set in 1880, in no way, uh, you know, mentions World War II, but... It's this fantasy, this nostalgia for um, this kind of life in a previous era in which the most serious things were like, you know, can Junior get a new suit or not, as opposed to, say, going to fight fascism in Europe. Um, it hit that chord. People wanted to see that. It deeply appealed to people, that kind of nostalgic fantasy of family. Um, at the same time, though, one of the other hits of the era is The Voice of the Turtle. Uh, and this is one of those plays when yeah. I talk to, like, theater folks, most of them I just stare blankly at the title. It is, I would argue, one of the most forgotten of the long-running hit plays. But this is a play that actually directly addresses World War II, uh, that it, you know, is premieres and said in 1943. It's about a soldier who's on leave and in New York City has an affair with an actress, and they discuss the war and really the hardship of it. Uh, so even though these plays are very different in terms of their actual topicality and even their genre, each in their own way, yes, absolutely did address something that people either um, wanted to experience in the theater or a fantasy that they wanted to engage in, in the theater. And so that's part of how I write about it, too. It's not just topicality, but even just what fantasies do these plays appeal to? What ideologies or what values 
do we see reflected in these plays that really made them so popular in their particular moment? You set your criteria as plays that ran at least a thousand performances. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes, that's right. Okay. And um, I think if I read the preface right, about 26 <laughs> plays qualified, but you focus on 15 in the book. And mm-hmm. I was wondering how you, you know, winnowed those down to the 15 in the book, some of which I knew and some of which, like Voice of the Turtle, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Good. No, also, I mean, and honestly, that's part of what I would hope for the book, that there's something to interest folks that, like yourself, are so knowledgeable about theater and to maybe take them a bit deeper into some of the research I've done. Uh, but then in other cases, yeah, to find something that might actually be a surprise or something that does feel a bit like, you know, something that's been hidden in, you know, the sands of time. But uh, but the way that I, you know, went about organizing the book is that I noticed just in my own research that many of the sort of people that talk about theater, whether this is, you know, the journalists, the critics, the reviewers, the artists themselves when interviewed, they all seem to understand a thousand as Mm -hmm. a special mark, as the kind of landmark performance. Uh, And in fact, in some earlier papers, I even saw some critics referring to it as like the golden circle, that once a play had run that many performances, it was admitted to the golden circle. Um, And, you know, and to this day, uh, you know, at least last time I checked, Variety uh, will annually publish a list of every play and musical that has run over a thousand performances. That's their cutoff point as well. And so even though there's something a little bit arbitrary about, you know, it's just a number, it's a number that has come to signify things, uh, those to uh, theater practitioners, to the kind of commentators around theater, and I would argue like to fans and audience members too. Uh, but then in terms of structuring the book, part of the story that I wanted to tell was not just about individual plays, although I'm hoping the kind of story of each individual play is, you know, intriguing and engaging in its own right. But I also wanted to tell the story of what I am calling the rise and fall of the long-running hit play as a distinct cultural phenomenon. So, for example, the first time that any play, play or musical, runs over a thousand performances, it's a show called Lightning that opens in 1918. Uh, And pretty much for the first couple of decades, you get like one per decade, one show that manages to run over a thousand performances, but then it increases. But the 1940s, there are like at least seven plays that run over a thousand performances through the 50s, 60s, 70s even, and even then into the 80s, there are a number of plays that um, were able to reach this mark. And then it declines. And so part of what I was trying to do was to sort of understand what is this phenomenon of the the long-running hit play, uh, and how can I trace it over a century of theater history? And so in order to do that, rather than trying to like actually talk about all 26 plays, I wanted to be able to go more deeply into some specific plays. And so in order to do that, I would take the top two in each decade. So in other words, Mm. if there were, you know, like five or six plays that ran over a thousand performances, what were the two longest running in a particular decade? And to focus on them pretty specifically. So you have uh, uh, Barefoot in the Park and Brighton Beach Memoirs uh, 20 years apart. Yeah. Um, but, But Neil Simon you know, spanning this, uh, how do you, how do you pick these Neil Simon plays and, and do a comparison contrast over such a, a career like that? You could teach a master class in just that alone. So what are your thoughts about Mr. Simon's work? Well, I mean, it's true, right, that if you're going to talk about the popular theater, I mean, Neil Simon is right at the center of it. Uh, he's arguably like the most commercially successful playwright, um, certainly in the American theater. And so part of what I was pleased to see, because 
in many ways, I have to be honest with you, I didn't choose the plays. Hmm. I let the audience choose the plays. Mm -hmm. In other words, what were the plays that actually ran the longest in each decade? And I just went by the numbers. So the fact that Barefoot in the Park was one of the two longest running plays in the 1960s, and then Brighton Beach Memoirs is one of the two longest running plays in the 1980s, is not something that I chose. That's something that the numbers themselves led me to explore. But you're absolutely right that part of what is happening here and part of what I actually do is that in the 1960s, Simon is still very much in the earliest part of his career. Uh, and in fact, uh, Barefoot in the Park is his first show to run over a thousand performances. Brighton Beach Memoirs is his last show to run over a thousand performances. And so in some ways I am tracing, you know, Mr. Simon's career from the 60s through to the 80s and of course beyond, you know, up to the uh, most recent attempt to revive Brighton Beach Memoirs mm. on Broadway, which did not go too well for Mr. Simon, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so definitely when thinking about the you know popular play within the American theater, Neil Simon, yes, absolutely, is right at the heart of it. Well, that's why I was wondering: Do these plays get produced today? Maybe if not on Broadway, are high schools doing mm. them? Colleges, community uh, uh, theaters, or are they? just literally for the books? I mean, so it's an excellent question. And indeed, I found that each play kind of offered a different answer to this. So yes, there are some plays that, uh, well, so for example, a play like, uh, like Harvey, and actually also Born Yesterday fits into this category as well, were very well respected in their time. And then because they were done in so many amateur productions, summer stock, community theaters, and so forth, many people began to feel that these were kind of not very good plays, that they were simply popular plays that did not necessarily merit professional productions any longer. But then some brave theater artists would come along, and this you know, often would happen by like the 70s or 80s, saying, you know what, we actually see something more special in this play. So we're going to take Harvey and we're going to produce it at um, you know, a major regional theater. And if the production goes well, it actually helps to reinvigorate that play's reputation. And so then more professional companies do it. So I would say that there are some plays, yes, that are very much still, you know, revived on Broadway, done by professional companies around the country. There are others then that are not really considered commercially viable anymore. And so they may be done at like smaller regional theaters, amateur companies, perhaps even colleges. Then there are those that, I don't know, I might almost put into the category of like the rarefied specialty. So, for like example, yeah. uh, Life with Father. Mm -hmm. um, that this is a play that has not really had a major professional revival in decades. But if you look around the country, there's like, you know, little companies. Like there's one uh, actually coincidentally in my hometown, Youngstown, Ohio, called the Victorian Players. And so they specialize in kind of like old fashioned plays and things set in that era. And they did a production of this play, you know, within the, within the past decade. So there's that tier as well. And then there are those that like, yes, are kind of frankly unproducible. Uh, in this category, I would put Tea House of the August Moon hmm. because it is a play about Americans in Okinawa. And to put it bluntly, it's, I mean, any modern audience would find this to be a very racist play. Uh, and Even course, though it's a Pulitzer winner. Yes, it is. <laughs> so Tea House of the August Moon has the distinction of being the only play to win the Pulitzer, the Tony Award for Best Play, and to run over a thousand performances. This was such a remarkable play in its time. And indeed, one could even argue that in a certain way, it was trying to express 
kind of anti-imperialist message in the 1950s um, to try to be a little subversive. But in our own era, there's no denying that, like, yeah, any audience is going to find this racist, particularly uh, with, you know, the practice of yellow face that was being used throughout the 1950s and, in, you know, every production of this play. And so every once in a while, I've been able to find a reading of this play or a very small amateur production. Uh, but by and large, no, it is not a producible play anymore. Do you have a favorite um, among the plays that are you you wrote about? In the you know, it's it's a, such a good question. Uh, so there are many that I actually do have a lot of fondness for. Uh, perhaps you know, there's something always nostalgic about doing history, and so the plays that I do remember from my own sort of like you know coming up in the world uh, would be plays like Death Trap and uh, Torch Song Trilogy and Brighton Beach Memoirs. So mm-hmm. I still have like a fondness for that era of play. Uh, but if you ask me like which one I actually think might be the best play or like my personal favorite amongst them, um, I might actually have to go with Born Yesterday. Oh. Mm. I think it's probably like one of the still better revered and more often produced of the long running hit plays. Uh, it's a play that actually I've taught more than a few times. And in engaging with this play um, with, with students, I always continue to find new sort of subtleties and nuances in it and a sort of vibrant theatricality uh, that, yes, absolutely still makes this play to me a pleasure. And of course, there's, you know, a fantastic film version of it that captures, you know, Judy Holliday's fantastic performance in it. And so it's one of those plays that somehow I think stays with our culture more than some of the others that I've researched and written about in the book. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, I know that your book is really focused on Broadway, but uh, the Fantastics, mm-hmm. you mm. know, uh, w- one of the longest running plays ever, yes. uh, you know, with music. Uh, what's your take on uh, the off-Broadway scene in some long-run plays? So the, the place in the book where I actually paid the most attention to this is when I'm contrasting the sort of the rise of off-Broadway with what's happening on Broadway, particularly in the early 60s. Because uh, one of the arguments that I make is if you look at the long-running Broadway hits of the early 60s, it's Mary Mary by Gene Kerr and Barefoot in the Park by Neil Simon. Both of them, I mean, and Gene Kerr is actually like quite explicit mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. She gave interviews about this saying that she did not like the avant-garde. She did not like Genet. She did not like any of the stuff that was happening off-Broadway. She wanted an old-fashioned, you know, mainstream play. And indeed, that is what seems to have been most appealing to the Broadway audience in the early 60s. But if you compare, for example, that, you know, the same season that Barefoot in the Park is on Broadway, off-Broadway, you have Dutchman by Mary Baraka. You have The Brig being done by the Living Theater. There is amazing, radical, brilliant theater happening off-Broadway, but not on Broadway in this era. And so, you know, like definitely Marat Saad makes it to Broadway. You get some, you know, back it on Broadway. But for the most part, it's really happening off-Broadway. And so, you know, and again, I try to be clear about this as possible in the book. I'm not saying that these plays are the best plays, I would put Dutchman or The Brig up against Barefoot in the Park any day in terms of its aesthetic quality. But nevertheless, I'm interested in seeing how the popular theater functions and what made this play so popular. Uh, But yes, uh, there is no denying that the off-Broadway scene itself did develop its own long-running hits. Like one of the earliest ones was actually um, a revival of Three Penny Opera. Mm. Uh, And then uh, the, The Blacks by Jean Genet. Also, like, was one of the first off-Broadway shows to run over a thousand performances. So definitely, if, you know, it would be a different book 
because part of what I really was writing about was, you know, the popularity of these mainstream hits. But definitely, yes, you can also look at this phenomenon, uh, and not just off-Broadway, there's also regional plays. Uh, like there was a revival of a melodrama called The Drunkard that was done in Los Angeles for like, you know, over two decades. Uh, and so, yeah, you can definitely look at places beyond Broadway to find the phenomenon of the long-running hit. Uh, but for my purposes, yeah, I did pretty much just focus on Broadway for that. Looking at these other examples mostly as points of contrast, but really focusing on Broadway. Well, you, you focused, obviously, on plays. Mm. Um, when most of us think of long-running, we think of musicals. And I'm just wondering, were the long-running musicals just better than the long-running plays? Or do we remember them because of things like cast albums? Mm. So it's a really good question that, you know, part of what intrigued me is this contrast between the long-running musical and the long-running play. One of the things I found in my research that, that actually kind of surprised me is that early on in the 20th century, it was almost all plays that had long runs, not musicals. And really the pivot point is Oklahoma in 1943. And from Oklahoma forward, it gradually displaces all the plays, for example, in the top 10 longest, you know, list of longest running shows, plays or musicals combined. And then by the time you get to the 80s, they finally push out Life with Father, it's all musicals. So it's true, in our own modern era, it's really the musical that is the long running phenomenon. And so part of what I look at in the book is how that happened, <laughs> like what that kind of transition was from understanding plays as the long-running commodities to musicals. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Jan. I think that when we think about the long-running musicals, these are canonical works. Uh, they're still frequently revived. They're respected, or if they're not respected, they certainly still have, you know, a, a shall we say, uh, a a fan base that really still appreciates them. So, for example, um, something like uh, 42nd Street or Cats, uh, Phantom of the Opera, that these are shows that, you know, in some cases got mixed reviews when they opened, but that there are fans that love these shows. And I think you're right, some of it has to do with cast albums. It has to do with productions that maybe they've even been in in their high schools or communities. And then, mm. of course, like the professional revivals. Um, so part of what did intrigue me is that when we think about the long-running show, that the musicals do tend to be more esteemed. And they tend to have lasted into our current era in a way that the plays don't. That the plays do seem to speak to their own particular moment and therefore their own particular culture in a way that the musicals might not. And so, yes, I do think that the plays are more firmly grounded in their time, and that is part of what can make them so successful in their time. But then compared to musicals, it makes it a struggle for them afterwards. So, yeah, there are still plenty of musicals from the 1940s that will continually revive and still respect that are considered part of the canon of the American theater. Some of the plays, like Voice of the Turtle, no, they're just not. There's uh, an iconic play that I was surprised didn't make the list, and as I did the research on it, uh, I realized that it 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 missed the mark by a far, far, far. It was very far off, and I'm talking about Our Town. Mm. It's it's such an iconic play, and I didn't realize <laughs> that it it did terribly on Broadway, yeah, five, so five different times. I mean, it's so it's it's true, right? And so, you know, when I would just like talk to uh, you know friends who work in the theater or other theater scholars and like ask them, like, you know, what do you know about long-running hit plays? And they say, oh, do you mean things like um, 
Death of a Salesman and Streetcar Named Desire. And the truth is both of those plays did very well, but they did not run over a thousand performances. Mm. They were not the most popular plays, at least in terms of their Broadway run, within their time period. So it's true, there are masterpieces of the American theater, fantastic dramas, fantastic plays that are not in my book, because while they are good plays that I personally enjoy and that um, merit whatever critical attention they receive, although let's be honest, like Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Eugene O'Neill, Thornton Wilder, their plays get a lot of attention mm, um, yeah. <laughs> from you know scholars and critics and so forth. Um, here, I was really looking at it from another angle. But you're right that part of what can be surprising is when you look at what are the hits of a given era. Uh, you know, I don't think there's anyone alive today that thinks that Tobacco Road is a better play than Our Town. Mm. But nevertheless, it was Tobacco Road that like ran for seven and a half years. Mm. which our town did not. And so, again, my argument here is not that Tobacco Road is a better play, but that it is a play that spoke to its popular audience in a way that, at least within that particular moment, our town took a while to really develop its, uh, I would say, broader fan base. So, for example, once it finally finished its Broadway run and got licensed to, you know, theaters around the country, it explodes, right? Theaters all over the country are doing it. Um, Tobacco Road, it just occupied the cultural landscape in a very different way. There's no possibility that some play that maybe fits right in this uh, template where maybe it's not a critical favorite, but if allowed to play, would run for that long? Or do we no longer live in that kind of theatrical Mm. environment? So it's a really good question, and it's really the one that I try to answer in the last chapter of the book. So really the final question is, why was Brighton Beach Memoirs the last play to run over a thousand performances? Why have we not, since the mid-80s, had a Broadway play that's reached that mark? And there are a few different reasons um, that I try to offer about why this might be. Uh, One of the major ones is exactly as you say, like we just live in a different cultural uh, landscape, but also just theaters produced differently. Broadway is something different now than it was even in the 1970s. So for example, one of the statistics that I traced is what percentage of tourists buy tickets to Broadway as opposed to a local audience. Um, And for straight plays, it is mostly a local audience compared to the musicals, which is largely a tourist audience. And so part of what we see is this shift where, let's say, about like 40% of tickets are bought by tourists to rising up to like 60%, and we may even be beyond that now. So in other words, it's gearing towards a different audience. The economics of Broadway are radically different. And, you know, the other argument that I would really make, Jan, is that producers think differently about the long run. That in these previous decades, it was often just an individual producer behind a play. So Mm -hmm. here's a a good example of this. Uh, Aby's Irish Rose, it was the playwright herself, Anne Nichols, that produced it. She put up the money for it. And Mm -hmm. so she had a passion. She wanted to see it run. And so it was her own drive, her own determination that kept it going. And what I might argue is that in today's Broadway kind of ecosystem, if you have at least 12 different producers attached to any show. It's a small group. Well, right. Yes, probably even more than that, right? Um, That they're going to make decisions differently. Mm -hmm. That rather than thinking about the pride of having a long run, they're looking at the profit. And again, I don't blame them for this. It's a different cultural landscape. But it is a difference 
in terms of what kept a show running, the fact that producers wanted this. They thought that it was a goal. And nowadays, I'm not sure that producers of plays think of it as a goal. So I wanted to bring to your attention that just a few days ago, Harry Potter and the yes. Child broke a thousand performances. Yes. <laughs> but it's very confusing about how we're going to count those thousand performances <laughs> because the initial run had, had was broken up into two parts mm-hmm. with, and those were considered right. different performances. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then since coming back and combining into one show. But it it did break a it, it did break a thousand performances. Yeah, it's true. So so my book was completed in 2018, making mm-hmm. this kind of perfect century of 1918 to 2018. But in the final chapter, uh, Harry Potter had opened by that time, and mm-hmm. looking at how critics were speaking about it, what the sort of um, how it was being marketed to audiences. In the final chapter, I do say that it does look like Harry Potter is probably on its way to breaking a thousand performances, and indeed. You know, depending on how things go, it could even potentially break the record of life with father. I don't know if it'll actually hang around that long. Uh, but it's true that if you take a show um, that, first of all, um, most of the plays in the last decade, in the last 10 years that have been able to run extensively on Broadway have been these British imports. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shows with longer runs have been things like The 39 Steps, War Horse, and The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Mm-hmm. And so looking at what kind of spectacles and what kind of storytelling within a play mm-hmm. seems to attract a larger Broadway audience, Harry Potter has taken this and, you know, magnified it even more. So, you know, one of the assertions that I make is that if the British import musicals of the 1980s are called mega musicals, I would call Harry Potter a mega play. Yeah. Yes, they're they're like they're like musicals without music. Right, and that's just it. They really do function like musicals. In fact, in many cases, like you know, their scores and or their choreographers are nominated for Tony Awards, even though they are technically straight plays. Another element that I point out is that you know, in all of those shows, it's very rare for the actors to be the stars. That often mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the spectacle. So it's all the design elements. Mm-hmm. The design elements in all those shows win the Tony Awards, right? And so if you get the best play Tony Award plus all the design elements, you don't necessarily need a star to keep the play running. And so it can have that longer kind of run. So, yes, absolutely. It's uh, kind of amazing that, you know, after the shutdown of COVID, that here we are with Harry Potter, yes, crossing that thousand performance mark. Uh, and I guess we'll see how far it keeps going. If mm-hmm. only they could run right Top Gun, the play. Oh, <laughs> you know, James. Top Gun, the play that could that could break a thousand. But it's part of what's interesting, right? That when we look at other forms of culture, when we look at movies or pop music, that we can talk about kind of you know the avant-garde and the artistic works that push the genre forward. But we can also just talk about the popular hits. Um, and in the theater, sometimes I see that um, I don't know that maybe we don't do that as often as we could. They say, you know what, it may not be the most esteemed play. I don't know if anyone thinks that Maverick is going to like win the Oscar for best movie. <laughs> but nevertheless, it hits a cultural nerve. People yeah. talk about it. It has something to say to the moment. Can we talk about plays in the same way? So I have one last question for you hmm. before we let you go. Uh, is the drama bookstore the most dangerous place that you could walk into? <laughs> 
Um, either that or eBay, because I, uh-huh, I love browsing yeah. the used books, actually. Okay. Uh, digging back into history. But, but yes, no, it's true. I mean, part of this uh, was my own passion just to want to read more, to know more, to explore the history. And so, yeah, I will say that I'm something of a glutton when it comes to exploring uh, this particular form of culture just because I love it so much. And it's part of that love of the culture that um, of theater that I really wanted to share with readers as well. Do you read uh, New Plays? Oh, absolutely. Yes. No, it's, uh, it's true that while, you know, this book is mostly focused on, uh, on you know, the sort of history of Broadway and the American theater, that I'm very much a fan of new plays and new playwrights and definitely think that they are worth supporting. I think that there are exciting new writers doing brilliant things in the American theater, even if they never run a thousand performances, right? Because that is only one mark of success yeah. in the theater. There are so many others. And indeed, I might even argue more valuable markers of success in the theater. Um, and new playwrights are absolutely doing that. Off the top of your head, do you have uh, one or two titles or playwrights that we should keep our eyes out for? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm sure that they're ones that you already know. I mean, some of the uh, plays that I've enjoyed most in recent um, seasons, uh, Jackie Sibley's Drury, yeah. I think is an, a fantastic playwright with such a vivid theatrical imagination. Um, one of the plays I saw recently that I truly enjoyed was a play called A Case for the Existence of God, yeah. oh, directed yes. by David Cromer, mm-hmm. written yeah. by Sam Hunter. Just like a beautiful play, so well done, brilliantly acted. Um, so, yes, no, just off the top of my head, those are like two, two that come to mind immediately. Oh, that's wonderful. So, Jordan, I want to thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. If you'd like to uh, read Jordan's uh, book in the long run, A Cultural History of Broadway hit play, Broadway's Hit Plays, you can go to broadwayinthelongrun.com. Uh, it uh, can be found anywhere that finer books are sold. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. It's yes, been a pleasure. Yes, thanks. It's been great. <laughs> So that is just a sample of the books that are on Jan's list for 2022. Jan, you have a long history in academia and want to let the listeners know that you do not require book reports, do you? No, (laughs) no, 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 no. But thank you for doing this. This is, uh, this is, uh, this is really great. It's, um, it gets the word out about these books and, uh, and they don't always get the attention you know, that, that they deserve. So it's great. Yeah, and we, uh, we only touched upon some of these books, and plus you have uh, 15 other years of I lists know. of books <laughs> over at broadwayme.com. So uh, if you're interested in this and finding more about these books, uh, go over to broadwayme.com and check out this year's list and all the other lists that are there. Thank you, Jan, for uh, joining us once again, and we'll be speaking with you soon. Okay, thank you, James, and uh, happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July. Okay. Okay.